Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is January 3rd, 2013, and my guest is Esther Dyson, author, investor, and my favorite title in a long time, Internet Court Jester, spelled J-E-S-T-H-E-R. Esther, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you. Glad to be here. Our topic for today to start with, at least, is an essay you wrote recently on what is called the attention economy, the idea that a lot of us spend time on the Internet in very non-commercial ways. Uh, but I'm sure we're going to get into other issues as well. But let's start there. What do you mean by the attention economy? Okay, well, first, um, and somewhat ironically, I need to make sure to point your attention at Michael Goldhaber, who originally, I'm, I'm not sure who originally coined the term or the concept, but he was definitely there early. And he wrote a piece, or we co-wrote, I don't know, for my newsletter, release 1.0 on it, maybe, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago. But it's, it's this notion that one definition of economics is the study of scarcity. And attention is extremely scarce. So what are the economics of attention? And is it fungible? How do you, is one person's attention worth the same as another person's? Obviously not. How do you quantify attention? How do you share it? Uh, all these kinds of things. And increasingly in our modern world, attention is one of the few things that can't be duplicated or mass produced. So it, it can certainly be mass collected if you like. That's what movie stars and things do. So just thinking about how people seek attention or gratified by it. Uh, businesses think of attention as something somehow connected to an intention to buy your product. But it's certainly dramatic tension. People don't go online necessarily to buy products. They go online to not just to give attention, but to get attention. A lot of people, that's what they do all day. They post hoping to attract attention of their friends, their fans, their ex-boyfriends, uh, hmm. the public at large, whatever. And there's a certain, you can't trade that attention for anything. It's, you can deflect it, you can use it, but in the end, attention has an intrinsic value to people, not to computers, but people like being paid attention to. And sometimes that's perverted because they're not loved. Sometimes it's excessive, but like, like a number of other elemental drives, it's, it's something that most people inherently find pleasure in and it drives a lot of other things. It drives a lot of other activities. It's connected with sex and reproduction, but it's, it's virtual. So it's, it's very interesting and very complicated and something worth paying attention to. So what are the implications of that for, for economics, uh, the way economists usually practice it at least? I, I think one of the, yeah. you, you talk about how people are getting on the internet not to buy anything. And I think that alarms some people, not me. Yes, not indeed. Oh, my God. They're spending all this time. Right. And how can we monetize it? Um, so the first thing is to recognize it, to understand that, that people intrinsically enjoy doing things that may not generate revenue. It's sort of like the same alarming thing as, as people enjoying themselves walking through woods without... You know, there's no entrance fee. There's... <laughs> Doesn't add to GDP. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't contribute to the to the measured economy. Yeah. And as more and more, you know, as we become, if you like, more and more productive, are people going to go back to spending more time doing things that are economically not countable, yeah. that are intrinsically valuable to them? So, 
Well, that strikes me as a lovely thought. Uh, you write yes, it, it is. You write in the, in the essay, um, in fact, the question is whether we will start doing more and more intellectual work for free or for barter, becoming more like our ancestors. Instead of producing food or housing for ourselves or for barter, we'll be producing content and amusement for one another without engaging in explicit, taxable financial exchange. Yes, there is a so-called gift economy, but there's also an attention market that may not be fungible or priced, a distributed many-to-many economy that harks back to the old days. And by the old days, you mean the more primitive society, non-commercial, non-market society yeah, when the, we... The, pre, the pre-quantified, you know, you, you, you had a goat. <laughs> you would trade your goat for winter clothes or something, but... It was it was a non-priced economy. I mean, now we have a world where you change the price in China and things adjust slightly everywhere. And of course, we have trade barriers and so forth. But the you know, price price propagates, and this is an economy where things don't propagate. It's between you and the other person. And of course, there's also the the movie star part of it, but the the direct face to face where you don't need a price, you simply exchange attention and sometimes you don't exchange it. Sometimes I pay attention to you, but you don't pay attention Correct. to me. So let's go when you mentioned the movie star part of it, so you're talking about the fact that there are large groups of people who spend large amounts of time reading about, looking at, watching stars. Paying attention to other people, yeah. But of course And that that of course is very much fostered by the new media, but so is the, I pay attention to the 30 people I went to school with and some of them pay attention back to me or to the other. So there's some of it's semi-symmetrical and some of it's very asymmetrical. And some of it is, you know, it's like the movie star doesn't return my attention. That's not a big problem. But Hmm. when my husband doesn't, or my girlfriend, then that asymmetry becomes a problem. Yeah, well, that, that's an old problem, though. It, yes, what's it what's interesting about today, I think, is the scope to pay attention to people and things and phenomena that I couldn't have imagined 20 years ago. And right, the, and so, I mean, one question is, is this, so nutrition Food is, is an elemental human need. And then there's sugar, which is kind of a pseudo food that satisfies some of the nutritional needs, but actually creates a metabolic disorder. And is, you know, is, is there a sugar equivalent? It's like bad attention. I pay attention to the movie star who doesn't pay attention to me. It, it gives me some of the same satisfaction, but it actually destroys my attention metabolism. Well, I think you got an interesting point a minute ago when you talked about a fundamental human drive. And keeping in mind that this is a G-rated program, let's talk about some of the fundamental parts of this phenomenon that are that are you know that are really primal, right? As you said, paying people paying attention to you, being feeling loved, um, feeling important, being delighted. These are the things I think that are the fundamental goods that people are consuming on the internet far beyond. I love Amazon. Don't get me wrong. But besides the fact that I can find a really good price for a good and, and find out about who likes it and what's popular about it, the ability to use the internet for these deeper phenomena, yeah. human, human drives, I think is, is what's interesting. Right. To get real attention and also to get fake or sugar attention. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, you go on and you post something and you get likes from people you don't know. Is that good or bad? And good for what? So it's, it's definitely different. And, then the and fl- like the f- everything else, it can be pathological or it can yeah. be really satisfying. Well, the flip side of that is the, the troll who, uh, says grotesque and, and cruel things on a, on a webpage on somebody's blog and, um, it's surprising sometimes how painful that is. <laughs> yes. It's just a stranger. It's like, 
you know, we, we shouldn't really get excited when a bunch of strangers like us, and we probably shouldn't get excited when a bunch of strangers have nasty things to say about us, but I don't think we yeah. can help it much. Yeah, well, you wonder, who is that person? You know, they hate me so much. You know, yeah. anonymity is a, is a big, interesting part of this. Um, we changed the um, commenting system at our blog, my blog with Don Boudreaux, which is Cafe Hayek, and the uh, the comments got, I think, less interesting but more civil. Uh, we made yeah. them. We made people use their real names basically via Facebook. There's obviously ways to get around it, but here at Econ Talk, the comments you have to use a real email address. We actually um, monitor them and and throw out cruel ones and crude and and obnoxious ones. Yeah, and good. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, good, isn't it? But but it's interesting that we want to and that that. One, that when we're anonymous, we feel comfortable saying things that we wouldn't otherwise, and um, that it makes a difference when it's public. Yeah. No, so, it's, it's, we're so primed <laughs> to pay attention to this stuff. Now, one of the implications of this, to me, which I think is often forgotten, is that what a strange time in human affairs. I mean, you talk about how it harkens back to some primitive times. And what you're talking about is the the fact that there isn't a market price necessarily for attention. There's not um, arbitrage, uh, people buying high and buying low and selling high. Uh, or at least there doesn't seem to be in the attention economy. Yeah, but, I mean, there there is, but it's 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 like you can't put it in a bottle and save it. It's Attention is a an activity or an action rather than a a thing, and so you know. I mean, other than saying, "I'll give you twenty dollars if you pay attention to me tomorrow." I mean, it's it's a possible <laughs> transaction, and to some extent, it's you know, I'll take you out to dinner tonight so that you'll pay attention to me tomorrow. I mean, it, but it's it's a it's not very transferable. It's not all these things, whatever. Yeah, no, it's 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 clearly it's clearly a different thing. Well, I used to say, I still say it. I'm not sure I should say it, but I used to say that that when we become more productive, we create the most precious thing we can have, which is time, because we yeah. we're able to spend less time feeding ourselves and more time searching the internet, getting for, attention. Yeah, or 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 being delighted. Um, yes. Or yeah. Paying attention, I would say, is, is the other, is the, the two sides of it. Getting attention right. and paying attention. Paying attention meaning watching something glorious and beautiful yeah. or hearing something. You know, the fact that I can Or something horrible or worrying about something stupid. Yeah, well, that, that too. People don't always get pleasure from paying attention. But what I was going to say is that this is, I, I like to say that being productive creates the most precious resource because it's the scarcest, which is time. And people have, so, well, it's nothing really particularly scarce about time, but there is in the fundamental sense that we live a fixed amount of time. We don't know how long that is and how we spend our time in, in many ways is the most important decision we make. And I think the, um, our wealth has allowed us to spend our time in these both transcendent and, um, not so transcendent ways on the internet. Right. But it suggests we're a very wealthy society, right? So you're, you're cat harking back to a time when we were very poor and specialization wasn't possible. Now specialization is so ubiquitous, we can take some of the time that's created by it and spend it uh, on Flickr. <laughs> yeah. Well, let, let's talk about data, which is something you've also written about a, okay. a, a lot, uh, which we're, we've touched on implicitly in this conversation one of the things you've talked about is something called the quantified community, our ability to monitor ourselves, our health, our body, our activities. What's that about, and where where is it going? Why is it important? Okay, well, there, I mean, it starts with the quantified self, or perhaps it starts even before that with the, the quantified car, for example. The notion of you monitor something and its, it's vital signs. Uh, interestingly, and... Just a little anecdote, there's this website called realage.com, which was acquired some years ago by Hearst. It was founded by a guy who before that 
ran Jiffy Lube, the uh, car maintenance service. Hmm. So anyway, the idea of the quantified self is that you, you measure how many steps you take, uh, perhaps what and how much you eat, how much you sleep. The, the more, the merrier, obviously. And not only do you monitor it, but then you respond to that. And so with more or less effort simply by paying attention and perhaps with some game dynamics, by quantifying your behavior, you change it. If you don't know what you're doing, it's much harder to change it or to notice that it needs changing. And then there's the idea of the quantified community, which is sort of similar. Well, let's see what is the graduation rate of our high school? Uh, how many potholes do we have? Where do the most accidents occur? Maybe we should put street signs there or what kind of garbage are we producing? Do we need recycling? Anything, anything that a community does or produces, again, can be quantified and then sometimes people would say, oh, you know, this isn't so good. We should change it. And how do we change it? It's mostly quantification is good. It leads to self-knowledge and, and self-improvement. The challenge is that you, you can't measure everything and, and particularly you can't measure long-term things so that you might if you quantified yourself, you might not pay enough attention to long-term infrastructure problems. Or hmm. if you don't think about this properly, you might quantify the return on education, which is very low in the short term, and not spend enough on education or on preventive health as it happens. So the challenge is to, to pay attention to this, but not to ignore the fact that some things take a long-term Long time to have an impact. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm a little bit of a, it's funny, I, I have a little bit of, um, schizophrenia about this issue, right? I, because? We, well, we have a lot of people on this program who talk about the virtues of measurement and data and, mm-hmm. um, thinking about Ian Ayers and his book Number Crunchers. We're on the, we're on the cusp of a great revolution. And then on the other hand, I have people like, Jim Manzi and Sim Taleb, and uh, who say, you know, we fool ourselves into thinking we understand things that we don't really understand. And I, I, I'm in both camps. I, I think people often misunderstand this program and think it me, me, that my skepticism about data means I'm against data. I think the art of being a grown-up and a thinking person is to understand when data is useful and when it's not. Well, to understand how it could be improved, if you, you need to know enough to understand the imperfections. Correct. A little learning is a dangerous thing. Yeah. And I think, um, we're, you know, the, the issue is, for me, is we're not, I don't think very, our brains are not very well designed for thinking about, or well evolved, depending on your preference of language, for thinking about um, uncertainty, and probability, um, complexity, and so, as you point out, you know, something that looks good in the short run turns out to be toxic in the long run or vice versa. And we often want to know, well, which is it? Is it good for me or bad for me? I once, yeah. had, I once had an MBA student. I was criticizing something about Swedish public policy or it's Swedish subsidies to the car market. I think that's what it was. Swedish subsidies to the car market. And mm-hmm. the student said, well, wait a minute. In my other class, we were told Volvo's a great company. Because, <laughs> you know, they wanted to know, student wanted to know, well, is it a great company or not? So when the question on the exam comes, which box do I check? But life is, alas, a little richer than More that. More complicated. Yeah, just yeah. a titch. So one aspect of this we touched on earlier, this attention aspect, why do we care so much about people paying attention to us? Why is it, and our ability now to quantify that is a little bit frightening. You know, you can look at your books, Amazon rank. You can see how many people follow you on Twitter, how many people subscribe to Econ Talk. Well, more interestingly, you can look at your phone records and see whom you call and who calls you and how fast do they call you back and which person <laughs> in the company forgets to CC you all the time. And, and it's amazing what you can find if you look for it. And, yeah, you have to wonder 
the purpose of getting attention is clear. I guess if you didn't deeply desire attention, you wouldn't work hard to get it. So that's ultimately why we like attention. Yeah, it's something deep inside us. But combining these last two issues, how healthy is it to pay attention to that all the time, right? Yeah, well, it's just like you you like food, but you can eat too much food and you can crave too much attention. And as I mentioned, you can also get bogus attention that, that may be not real. And then your your craving gets worse. So it's it's like all these things. It can turn into something that's vestigial and overstimulated. Well, let, let me take an example from this program. So yes. something on the order of 20-plus thousand people download a podcast in its first week. Mm-hmm. And a popular one will get let's say, fifty to 100,000 downloads over the course of its first year. Right. And there's a long tail. Every podcast we've ever done for this program is still up there, all 350-plus of them, and you can people listen to all of them. Every, every month, I think every podcast gets at least one download, uh, which is kind of cool. And um, Yes, indeed. I don't, get the, I don't get those numbers often. I get them occasionally from uh, Liberty Fund, which is the sponsor of the program. But I'd really like to get them every day, <laughs> just, mm-hmm. which is not good. I, I just, I, I like knowing, I like to watch it climb. And, the, and those of you out there listening, you know, for all I know, you just download them and don't listen. So yeah. I have to imagine that you're listening. So I look at other monitors of, of attention. I look at the emails I receive at mail at econtalk.org. And I'm really or glad to get those. Right. I, I see how many people follow me on Twitter. Is it really a good idea? If I didn't know at all how many people are listening, I think it would be very depressing. But do I really want to know quite so much? Yeah. Good question. What do you think? Yes. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes I look at my Flickr stats and sometimes I'm too busy. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's like the odd little chocolate. The great thing, of course, about most of these stats is they never go down. They may grow slowly or grow not at all, but you don't, they don't get subtracted on a slow week. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's Which is I'm why doing, they're so gratifying. That's because I'm doing such a good job. But I think yeah, it could right. be because more and more people are getting on the internet, don't you think? Here, take your <laughs> stupid podcast back. I'm re, re, you know, I'm undownloading it. <laughs> But you can you can lose subscribers, but I you know I I do yeah. and people stop following you on Twitter and all that. But but there are an enormous number who just like you say they just you know, they follow you once and now they still follow you on paper, but they don't follow you. <laughs> right. Yeah, and at some point, people's attention is finite. They can sort of be doing two or three things at once. But again, this is I mean this is. Back to real economics, this is an issue where, you know, at some point people have only so much actual money, and of course they can earn more, but if people advertising loses its power as people need to spread their incomes across more and more things, so they may pay more attention to your particular product but they don't actually have more money to spend. And so if you show them more ads, they're just less responsive to each individual ad, for example, which is another thing. It's it's not about to happen yet, but it's something, it's a long-term issue. You know, we don't, we don't actually create more commerce. We create some more commerce through advertising. We create a lot of useless stuff, like people buying things they don't need. But at least they're tangibly buying stuff. As as people start to buy virtual goods, well, there's an inexhaustible supply, but there's not an inexhaustible supply of their time to be spent using these virtual goods. So there's some kind of diminishing returns, but it's pretty far off. Stuff. Yeah, when I see that on my iPad, when I first got it, I couldn't. You know, I kept downloading all these incredibly cool apps. And I still think they're incredibly cool. But my actual use of the device is narrowed extraordinarily to a handful yeah. of things 
And I have to be really bored to, to go see what, go admire the apps I bought in the early days. Um, right, or you have to be really bored to go and delete them because that requires yeah. work. Yeah, it's not a big deal as long as the space is, is there. I was thinking more about the attention. You're talking about the quality of attention and, and the, the constraints of it that you can do two or three things at once. I look at the human side of it when I when I travel now, and everybody is paying attention to their phone. Uh, they're looking <laughs> down at their smartphone. They're not engaging with the other people, which is fine because most people don't chit chat with strangers on the metro or on airplane flights. But people are immersed in their toy, and they're not paying what they're not paying attention to besides the people around them. I suspect is the person inside them, which uh, introspection seems to have taken a dive in the um, in the smartphone age. What do you think? Yes, um, I mean I'm not sure how much introspection was happening necessarily. <laughs> it might have been just random daydreaming. Who yeah, knows? staring off into the distance. One of my favorite activities. Yeah, and sometimes yeah. that's. Productive sometimes yeah. it isn't. Sometimes it's. But yeah, we. There's a lot less time just for thinking. I swim an hour a day, and I think, and I love it because the rest of the day, yes, I'm paying attention to something external, whether it's my computer or my email, or I'm reading or talking or listening or watching. But while I'm swimming, I'm thinking, and I love it. You don't listen and, to books on tape while you're swimming. Nope, and I don't want to. <laughs> I do. I do listen to audiobooks when I'm walking in the dark to my pool. Uh huh. Which I like doing because I always feel that's sort of wasted time. But while I'm swimming, I like just thinking about what I did or what I'm going to do or what I'm going to say in a talk or should I really go to this thing in Texas or not? It's when I'm swimming that I think of new ideas, and also when I cancel. Overcommitment. Yeah, sure. Uh, are you a good swimmer? Yeah. But you, I'm not, I don't count laps. That's the whole point. I, I do actually think, and I, I measure time. I swim, to be precise, I swim for 50 minutes, but I'm not counting laps or paying attention other than I try to swim 200 yards in four minutes every day in addition to the 50 minutes in general, but most of the time, I'm just kind of idly thinking while I'm swimming. Well, I ask you because I try to either ride a stationary bike or the elliptical machine, or mm -hmm. and I find it kind of painful. And so I, I find I listen to books on tape, I listen to classes, lectures. Yeah. Uh, but if I if you said to me I had to go do that for 50 minutes without any just thinking. I can walk for 50 minutes and thinking, but I can't do the elliptical for 50 minutes. So I'm curious if, if the swimming time is fun or pleasant or decent. Or it's, yeah, it's pleasant. I mean, usually by the end of the 50 minutes, I'm ready to get out. But it, I'm not out of breath at the end. I'm not exhausted. It's, it's really great time, and it's, it's perfect. It's, not, it's, it's work, so I don't feel bad about not reading while I'm doing it, but it's... It's not hard work, so I, I can concentrate on what I'm thinking about. Or what I don't like is circle swimming, because then you do have to, in fact, concentrate on who's around you. But it's just thinking is actually really great. Yeah, I, I think it's getting to be a lost start, though. That's what I, I worry about a little bit. I, you know, I look at my kids and how much time they want to spend on the Internet. I don't want them to spend quite as much as they'd like, not even close. Uh, but the the, um, the the ratio of of stimulus to introspection is seems to have, have grown a great deal. So, yeah, or self stimulus perhaps, which might not the term might have lost its original meaning. But the notion that you can just amuse yourself is becoming lost, which is sad. Yep. Although I don't, I don't know if it's really, I don't know if it's lost. We're just it's falling a little out of the habit. I, you think the internet's changing our brains? Are you one of those? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's making us 
think more short term, less narrative, less structure, less. The, the biggest issue is when you when you hear that Abraham Lincoln, for example, used to regularly give speeches of several hours. Nobody would sit still for that anymore. And people don't even like reading books. They like to see videos. And there's less construction. I don't know. Thoughts, less, less coherence. And I think, yeah, the, the Internet is definitely abetting that. I don't know if that's true. I, I, it, can't, it might be true. Right? It's hard to know. It's a, that's a good data question, right? If you look at, look at Hollywood movies that are successful, they're still, I mean, I just saw Les Mis, it's two hours and 40 minutes long. Nobody left. I don't think anybody left. And it's a narrative. It's a long narrative. It's not a set of... Yeah, of, but there's, if you look at the relative amount of time spent on short and useless video, it's pretty That's appalling. true. I mean, no, you that's know, true. People used to play cards, which is singularly useless as well. Yeah. Um, no, it builds strategic thinking. Um, I'm sure. I'm sure we could find some justification for it. But yeah. Um, and and I actually, mindless videos are hard to define. Um, you know, they're they inspire sometimes. They, but sometimes they um, just. You know, cat videos. <laughs> People stuck in elevators. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, that's shocking. I agree. Yeah. It's hard to understand how that those phenomenon uh, phenomena are so so uh, successful. Well, let's yeah. shift gears. Let's let's talk about investment, which investing, okay. which are, is something you uh, you do into a lot of. Um, talk about entrepreneurs. Talk about the people who are successful in starting companies and having, okay. having them grow. Well, yeah, the first thing is being successful in starting a company is easy. <laughs> being successful in growing it, scaling it, making something sustainable when you leave, that's hard. And that's what creates real value. It's not, personally, I think there's way too much veneration right now of the hero entrepreneur and not enough of the expanding team, the Middle management, which has become almost a swear word, but middle managers make people productive. They, they build teams, they motivate people, they, it's middle management ideally that takes the successes of one small team and enables other teams to emulate that. Uh, you know, that's, that's an idealized version of middle management, but in a in a good company that scales, yes, you do indeed have middle management, and it does useful things. So the challenge is, how do you scale this thing once you start it? We do I have like a, to, we do have a lot of romance for the visionary, right? Yeah, Steve Jobs the, the being single the guy yeah. who dropped out of Harvard, and yeah, but what about all the people he hires that then make the team and actually? build the stuff and find the customers and, and run the business. So I like to take the analogy of the, if you know the story of the stone soup where the con man goes to the village with his magic stone, he says, I have a magic stone. It will make a magic soup that will cure you of any disease and let you live forever. But of course, all I brought was the stone. The pot is too heavy. If you could just, Find me a pot, please, and maybe some vegetables from yesterday and an old ham bone. So he gathers the villagers. They bring all this stuff. At the end of the day, he has a magic soup that they partake of. And this is your archetypal con man and also your entrepreneur, somebody who makes something out of nothing, but with the help of a lot of people, kind of also like Tom Sawyer. But what we want is not one guy in one soup. Yeah. What we want is the ability to turn that soup into a daily production so that you have a restaurant and then you have a restaurant chain and you, you do this on a mass scale that it creates genuine leverage and, and real return on investment. And it's, it's that magical, it's not a jump, it's a long hard slot, but that, that movement from the one stone soup to 
the restaurant chain that does it every day regularly and pleases customers and provides value. That's where the magic is. Well, my, my wife makes a magic soup every night that delights six people, which is great. Yeah. Which is great. Which is great, but, but it's, it's not leveraged. If you can, del- if you can delight six million, it's better. And, yeah. and that's, that's real well, magic. Economically and commercially, it's yeah. better. But it, it, I think of it just on the human side. It's, um, it's not so much the jobs it creates, it's the value it creates in um, letting people not have to make their own soup <laughs> and do yeah. something well, else. That- it's it's, it's an institution or an infrastructure that makes people productive. Yeah. Because one person making soup, not very leveraged. Yeah. Thousands of people making soup. So whatever you think of McDonald's food, they can produce it much more cheaply than one person at home. Yeah. And so it's this, it's this ability to make people productive at scale. And what's interesting about the internet, of course, is that you can, it overcomes some of these economies of scale. One person doesn't need a secretary or an accountant. They can do all this stuff online. But the, the magic of a really productive economy, and especially a manufacturing economy, is Indeed, created when you have lots of people leveraged by institutional infrastructure, whether it's business processes or manufacturing facilities or marketing visibility. And each of those people is far more productive in the company than they would be as individuals. And well, the, you know, the bad thing is, of course, when a company gets so big that it makes its people less productive because you have hundreds of people just chasing yeah. around after one another without any impact on the product that's created. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, um, I think one of the lessons I learned from Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs, mm-hmm. which, by the way, I'd love to have him on the program, but he wasn't available. But the um, mm-hmm. You mean Steve or Walter? Either. Uh, <laughs> they both yeah. would have been good. Uh, yeah. Fortunately, only one of them is possible, uh, at least yeah. under current technology. But... Um, one of the things that's amazing, I think, about that book and the, the Apple and Steve Jobs story is that mm-hmm. his job's his ability to motivate people and make them more productive uh, to get the most out of their skills, which was at times a very inhuman and unpleasant world. Not everybody yeah. was comfortable in it, obviously. Yeah. But at times it yeah, was... Yeah, I, I had my run-ins with Steve. Um, but well, when, he was, tell me. when he was good, he was very, very good. Oh, he just, you know, he could be nasty and unpleasant. <laughs> Well, yeah, it comes comes through pretty clearly in the book, but people still wanted to be around him. Yeah. Most people. Because he could be so stunningly just charming, beautiful, charismatic, whatever. Yeah. No, it's, again, that's pretty clear. But that skill to create a team and motivate it, you know, he's not a technical genius. Um, Actually, if you, if you want to, I don't know, would you like a story about Steve that, Sure. So it's it's not that per- well. I'll tell you two. One. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, we had. So I had my conference for years, and Steve came and spoke at it one year. What kind of conference? In the early eighties, the PC Forum, and then he had to leave because he had to be on Larry King, as I recall. So Steve, even then. This was when it was Bill and Steve and Fred Givens from Software Publishing, who nobody remembers anymore, but they were the big three. Bill is Bill Gates? And, pardon? Who is Bill? Gates, yeah. Yeah, just checking. So, Steve, people liked him, but they also competed fiercely with him and thought he was doing unfair things and, you know, it was the usual stuff. But a bunch of us gathered the next night in somebody's hotel room to watch Steve on Larry King. And suddenly, instead of being one of us and the guy we love to hate and so forth, he was speaking for us to the population of America. And it was quite magical. We all kind of felt this, you go, Steve, you tell them about us. It was, it was, it was, and there was nobody in the world then or now, who could represent 
the magic of this industry as well as Steve could. So that was quite magical. The other was some years later, he was going to come and sit on a panel. And the night before, it was still before cell phones. So I was, he called and said he couldn't make it. So I called him back on the payphone and he explained that his dad was very, very sick or dying and he, whatever. And I said, yeah, no problem. I understand it's your dad. Of course you can't come. No, just do what you need to do. And he said, but I'll make it up to you, Esther. Next year I'll come and I'll speak twice. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Did he? No, but it, it, Interesting guy. Yeah. He was great. Yeah, for sure. So one of the most wonderful things I ever saw was the Bill and Steve panel at All Things D, which would have been probably four years ago now, where they they were quite friendly and reminisced and smiled at each other. And Bill actually said he envied Steve's sense of design. And Steve... As I recall, they were kind of trying to get him to say that he envied Bill's <laughs> business acumen, that he couldn't quite get it out. Nah, probably not. It's okay. Anyway, but it was it was an absolutely magical session. That's pretty cool. But back to investing, I apologize. That's all right. That's interesting. Um, so your point, though, was that a lot of times we romanticize the lone visionary, The I think it was a gunslinger cleans up the town or cleans up the industry or changes, transforms it. But the people who are doing the blocking and tackling and the heavy work are often unromanticized, but they're, they're very important. And obviously yeah. an entrepreneur who can create that infrastructure, that hierarchy, whatever, not hierarchy is the wrong word, but the, the network within a company that allows it to, to grow and thrive is, is underappreciated. Yeah. Call it, call it the organism. Yeah who can help the organism thrive. How do you, um, do we know anything about what those people are like who can do that? Do you, how do you find them? Or are you just lucky? Uh, yeah, in theory, you find them. In practice, you get lucky. It's, it's people who have the ability to listen, people who are sensitive and flexible, are able to make and admit mistakes. And of course, there's always counterexamples who are perfectly horrible to deal with, yet somehow build something anyway. Uh, but I like, I'm an angel investor, so I invest my time as well. I like investing in things where I like the people. And if I had infinite amounts of money, then I'd have to spend it on all kinds of things that I didn't particularly like. But if you have a limited amount, you can be picky. So... I invest in things where I like the person, usually. I've made mistakes there, and especially where I like the idea or the purpose. So I don't do video sharing for rich white guys. I, right now, I'm doing mostly health stuff. Now, you, you've been an early investor in some very successful startups, such as Flickr and Delicious. In those early stages. Yeah, well, actually, I don't know why Delicious wasn't that successful to be candid. <laughs> it, was, it was acquired. People well, always mention it. Yeah. I was an investor in well, we've heard of it, MedStory, yes, yeah. which got, I was an investor in Datami, which got acquired by Nielsen. Um, currently, I'm an investor. I was on the board of Evernote. I'm an investor in Square. Um, yeah, there's there's more to it than those two. But anyway, keep going. Sorry. Well, yeah, Delicious is mentioned, I think, in your bios because people have heard of it. Um, but, yeah. Uh, those, some of those turned out to be extraordinary companies. Uh, I'm, I'm a huge Evernote fan, by the way, um, are in the process of becoming extraordinary companies. In the early, early stages, when you saw them on the drawing board or in the yeah. those first days, did you have the feeling they were going to be something spectacular? And for the were there another ten that you've had the same feeling that didn't? What have you learned from that experience um, of watching those companies? Yeah, you know, I mean, the reality is, no, you get lucky sometimes and unlucky other times. I, I like 
Flickr started out as as more of a game. It was called Ludicorp, as in Ludo, the Latin for play. Mm-hmm. And then they started sort of applying game dynamics to photos. And I loved it because I like taking photos. Um, and then we got acquired perhaps a little early by Yahoo, which ignored us for many years and is now wonderfully paying attention again, which is, which is absolutely great. Yeah, coming the, back. Yeah, well, the thing people don't realize about Flickr, you, some, several orders of magnitude more photos get uploaded to Facebook. But yes, correct. I'm not sure the Different exact kind. statistics, but something like 80% of the Facebook photos have a person's face in them. Yeah. Something like 80% of the Flickr photos do not. Now, Flickr's for photographers and mostly, yeah. and, and, well, and Facebook's and, for people who want attention. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Not, and by the way, like you, I, I look at my Flickr accounts too because I, I can't help myself. Yeah. Uh, and I view it okay. as a measure of my uh, photography ability, which is stupid, but it's, um, anyway, it's and, an amazing company. Yeah. But so, Evernote, for example, I invested, I was an investor in Paragraph, which is Stepan Pachikov's first company. And they, they did the handwriting recognition for the Newton. I, Whoa. I helped, I helped Stepan, who, who I met in Russia, I helped him get in touch with both Bill and Steve. And one day he called me up and said, a lawyer will be in touch with you. Please sign the documents. We're giving you 1% of the company. <laughs> so I got an infinite return on that particular company. And yeah. when he came to me with Evernote, of course, I agreed to get involved again. Uh, but yeah, Stepan's a genius. He's not a great manager and nice product, but it was sort of floundering. And then we got lucky and found Phil Libin, who's the current CEO, and suddenly things began to click. So almost every company has a story that is more complicated than I found the right CEO and we all lived happily ever after. Or I had a great idea and we all lived happily ever after. Yeah, so, um, you know, I've done a lot of things that I'm very proud of that didn't do well commercially and I've done other things that did well commercially that I had nothing to do with their success, but they helped me do the other things. So it's, it's all statistics. It's not, it's not that you work harder on the ones that become successful. The people in them may work harder, but as an investor, you you have to be comfortable with getting lucky because people tend to attribute their successes to their intelligence and hard work and their failures to bad luck. But it's, it's often not that way. Yeah, no kidding. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's the problem with data. Easy to fool yourself sometimes. In in the old days, and this is say twenty five years ago, I used to be told by investors that of the ten bets that you'd make, uh, three would be three or four would just totally not, never make it. Three or four would be so so, and the other two or three would be the ones that made up for everything, and you wouldn't know which those two or three were in advance. Is that still true, do you think? Um, that's true for VCs. For for angels, it's there are a few more failures, but the big returns are even bigger because you came in... An early at, stage. Yeah. An incredibly early stage, yeah. So you travel a lot. You yeah. um looking at companies and talking to entrepreneurs. Do you think the U.S. is unique? And if so, how? Well, of course it's unique. Um, that doesn't mean everybody in it's unique or that you can't do startups elsewhere, but it's, it's a combination of a very failure tolerant culture, a huge market that is open to new things, sometimes excessively so. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's not so bad to stick with something old that works. And, and then, and an infrastructure that supports this. You can, you can walk down the street and find a CFO. You can find a landlord who will take equity. 
those things are very hard to find in most of the world. But it's it's the culture and the market that matter as well. And yes, they are unique. I mean, I'm I'm seeing startups and startup communities elsewhere around the world. And the more you get culturally specific rather than just technology, the the less important the U.S. is. But it's still a very special place. And and that's one of its big strengths. But we're we're losing some of that magic because of our crummy educational system and our failure to invest in infrastructure, including broadband as well as education and health, which yeah, one reason healthcare costs so much in the U.S. is that we're so unhealthy. <laughs> and we're, that's much of it self-inflicted. Yeah, well, one reason we're so unhealthy is we're so wealthy and we can afford both an extravagant healthcare system and an extravagant lifestyle. Uh, we still live yeah. longer every year than we did before, which is shocking, really, when you think about it. It, it suggests that Longevity is a little more complicated than it than it seems seems to be. Um, within the United States, California has a unique place, has a unique reputation at least. There are other places, a handful around the country that have supposedly that failure tolerant culture. I think of Austin, Texas, maybe Boston. Uh, I don't know where else, but is um, is California special? Yeah, I mean, it's also special because it's just a really nice place to live. Uh, Boston gets too hot in the summer. Boston gets really too cold in the winter. California is just pleasant. Um, but it's, it's, it's not the only place. And even though proximity, I'm a big fan of physical proximity and having lunch together, it, it is easier and easier to do remote working of all kinds. So, Has any of that changed in the last five to ten years in terms of the yeah, culture? I, mean, certainly, I, don't, I don't mean California, I mean the United States in general. But do you think the environment yeah. for investing and starting companies is different than it was five, ten years ago? Well, I think we've had a bubble around the hero entrepreneur that's beginning to burst. I think we're Yeah, there, there's too many, and this is beginning to be recognized. I'm, I'm not alone in saying, let's build scalable companies rather than apps. Uh, and I, I'm very happy with the renewed attention that's being paid to health as well as healthcare. So these things go in waves and it will sort itself out eventually. Before but we... the, the biggest problem is is not in the in the tech sector as much as in the overall we are earning too much vis-a-vis the rest of the world and so we kind of yeah the rest of the world is becoming more productive but they're still only earning a quarter or a third of what we do and Attention may not be fungible, but earnings are. Yeah. And we're beginning to realize, oh, yeah, we're competing with people in India and, and China who are earning much less doing the same things. And, and more and more intellectual labor is fungible in a way that building bridges is not. Yeah. Well, it's good for them. And eventually it'll be good for no, us. No, it's great for them. And it's something that. It's going to be good for us long term, but we need to adjust to it and not think that we have a God-given right to earn four times as much as <laughs> people doing the same work elsewhere in the world. Yeah. Well, the reality will set in. It's. It's. Um, I don't know how much attention we have to pay to it. It'll. It'll. It forces. It's. It forces you to concentrate your mind. Um, I. I think we'll. I'm not sure how we're going to deal with it, but that's okay. We don't have to figure it out. It usually just happens. And you mentioned before we started the interview that you were an economics major. How does, right. e- how does economics uh, play a role in your life? Um, in everything, it's 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 it is in essence quantitative thinking, uh, valuing things, exploring alternatives, understanding opportunity costs. It's just a a way of 
thinking rationally about the world as opposed to simply about physics. And mind you, I very rarely went to class. <laughs> I did at least understand. So I, I was a nice, young, liberal person, and I wanted to change the world, but I had some suspicion that in order to do that, I had to understand how it worked. And I would say economics really gives you that. Yeah, it's a reality in, in, check. In in the ideal, it does. Yeah. That's I knew nothing about business, which is separate from economics. I agree with that. Uh, and certainly, you know, you can sleep through class or not go to class as long as you listen to econ talk. You know, my theory is that if you listen to econ talk long enough, and that, it doesn't have to be very long, you'll learn a lot of economics relative to what you might learn, in the, at least in the wrong classes, but... Yeah, um, and you'll start thinking more clearly. I hope so. That's the, I mean, it's, it's, that's the goal. It's just understanding investment, return, uh, surplus value, tradeability, barter, all these things that somehow they don't seem to really understand in Congress, unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, a lot of lawyers, not so many economists there. Um, yeah. Well, we're almost out of time. I want to close by asking you about your interest in space travel. Um, I've read that you're trained as a cosmonaut. I'd like to know what that means. And I'd like your thoughts on what is holding back personal space travel these days. And will it, do you think it'll get, become a reality in, okay. in your lifetime? So, yes, I plan for it to become a reality, not just in my lifetime, but in my life. Um, I trained as a cosmonaut which meant I spent six months in Star City outside of Moscow. I was a backup to Charles Simone, who actually went. And so I learned basically how to fix up the space station. It's much less about piloting and much more about space plumbing than than you might imagine. And, of course, I learned about just physiological, how to what keeps us alive and how to run the machines that keep us alive and so forth. As to what's holding it back, um, right now it's it's a question of time and energy. And yes, if anybody listening to this who's a billionaire wants to help fund some more of these space initiatives, that would be very helpful. But it's it's kind of like the internet. Now that the private sector is getting involved, there's a lot of commercial energy being unleashed, a little more risk tolerance. Yeah, NASA has a lot of problems. Most of them are not self-inflicted. They're inflicted by Congress, which keeps giving it some budget, telling it what to do, then changing its mind, reallocating the budget the next year. And so it's, it's a very difficult environment. And of course, it's, it's very risk averse because if anything bad happens, they get criticized and it's a huge disaster. And yes, we, we, we want to save human lives, but human lives are not, people die on Mount Everest all the time. And if, if the government were running Mount Everest, nobody would ever go up. Yeah, they'd yeah. shut it down. So it's, it's changing dramatically in this decade. And it's very exciting. I'm in, I'm involved. I'm an investor in XCore Aerospace as well as a customer and investor in Space Adventures, which did my space training. I'm involved with Golden Spike, which is planning to send two humans to the moon within the decade and then do that kind of in line with what I said earlier about entrepreneurs, not do it once, but build a company that can do it regularly. And it's it's going to be exciting and then it's going to be routine, which is even more exciting. But right now, why can't it, what's, obviously there's a mix of technology and resources yeah. and other things that hold it back. But if I said to you, why, why aren't there going to be two humans on the moon in the next five years? Why is it going to take 10 or, to, or the next year? Well, what's, what's missing? It's because we didn't start five or six years ago. It takes time to build these things. It takes, the, the technology is fundamentally there. We need to build some little components, the particular moon lander and, and so forth. But this is a big project. It's like it takes it's rocket science to build a subway system. <laughs> so we're Golden Spike is starting now, and we hope to be done by 
2019. So it's a a multi-year project and the issue is when you start. And again, if anybody wants to help by fronting us a couple of billion into Golden Spike, please email me, courtesy of Econ Talk, and I will get back to you promptly. (laughs) Oh, I bet you will. My guest today has been Esther Dyson. Esther, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you very much, and Happy New Year. You too. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.